Hello, I am Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. And this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 3rd, 2019, live from the Hamilton in Washington, D.C. Totally unprompted applause, Stefan, the best kind. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the past, present, and future of sports media and how our consumption habits have changed since the death of Deadspin and the partial zombification of Sports Illustrated. We'll also be joined by one of the greatest hurdlers of all time, Olympic gold medalist Don Harper Nelson. We'll talk with her about her career and her decision to come back this year after retiring to have a baby. Finally, we'll be joined by three of our favorite journalists, Gene Demby, Lindsey Gibbs, and Dave McKenna, for a segment on moral and ethical dilemmas related to bats and balls and things of that nature. We're calling it hard choices, parentheses, about sports. Uh, It is always an easy choice for me to sit alongside my podcast partner of the last 10 years, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. We have not done one of these things since 2016. Uh, Allie Krieger was our guest. She was a good guest. No pressure on tonight's guests. (laughs) One World Cup ago. Yeah, we're expecting our uh, guest tonight to win at least one World Cup in the uh, intervening years after, uh, after this podcast. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I'm going to start off on a little bit of a down note. As of tomorrow, it'll be one month since a story was posted on Deadspin, which before it was taken over and destroyed by hedge funders, had been operating continuously since 2005. And while there are now zero Deadspins, there are actually two Sports Illustrateds. There's the main SI operation, and there's also a Borg-like entity called Maven. It's populated by underpaid content creators. According to a report by Deadspin back when it still existed, Uh, The COO of the Maven said in a presentation to potential recruits, and I quote, nobody is actually a fan of ESPN or Sports Illustrated. They're a fan of the New York Giants or the Iowa Hawkeyes or what have you. So our vision is that entrepreneurs run these team-specific sites, people who are all Hawkeyes all the time or all Jets all the time. Those people don't exist. Uh, and are covering their team on an intense basis, and equally importantly, are fostering an intense community of fans who come back to the site every day. Uh, what a dense collection of bullshit that is. Um, it's incredibly stupid in a bunch of different ways, one of which is that a lot of people are fans of specific websites and newspapers, media entities, maybe not ESPN, but definitely Sports Illustrated and Deadspin, 
So what are fans of those sites to do now when sports media seems increasingly precarious? Joining us to discuss is a frequent and favorite guest of ours. He's one of the hosts of NPR's Code Switch. His Twitter screen name is Terry Ennui. His avatar is the Philadelphia 76ers logo. Tonight, he appears to be wearing a paraphernalia associated with a different Philadelphia team. Uh, Go Eagles. Fly, Eagles, fly. Uh, It's Gene Demby. Welcome, Gene. So let's start with our own sports media diets, Gene. Why don't you tell us how you consume sports stuff generally? And then, as we were talking about with Deadspin ceasing to exist, Sports Illustrated being whatever the hell it is now, how has that kind of changed or made you more aware of what you're reading and how you read it? I mean, like a lot of people, I was reading Deadspin like going like 10 to 15 times a day. I didn't even realize that I was using it that much until it went away. Were you hitting refresh? Were you like typing it in every time? I'm an older millennial, so I used RSS feeds. Oh, wow. Um, Google Reader, RIP. Yeah, I used like one of the Google Readers, RIP Google Reader. Um, And so I would go to to Deadspin, you know, a bunch of times a day, and then it went away, and then you realize that the thing that Deadspin did doesn't really exist out there, right? So there's The Athletic, which is fine, but it gives you gamers, right? Like, which is the thing you can find anywhere, right? It's just like, the Sixers went out last night, Joel Embiid scored zero points, you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, Like, you can find that anywhere, though, right? And so what Deadspin was doing was sort of assuming that you liked sports and also, like, lived in the larger world. Um, So, you know... The Ringer, which is has great basketball coverage, but again, is like very, very sports focused. ESPN, I guess, but you know what I mean. <laughs> the Athletic, which is again like super, super like narrowly, narrow, like narrowly focused on teams, um, but not really like doesn't really take a holistic sort of look at at the world that sports like operates inside of. Right, I think Deadspin threaded this needle between the dedicated hardcore sports fan who wanted to know what was going on mm-hmm. and it served the needs of people that were more interested in a broader assessment of the sports landscape. And I think the what's really what what the death of Deadspin has demonstrated is just how good it was at being a creator of sports thinking, mm-hmm. um, the, the, its ability to sort of identify events and stories and developments that merited candid, essayistic conversation and analysis. And on top of that, it supplied original reporting by its own staff and by freelancers. Mm-hmm. But it's also like profane and ridiculous. And I think sure. <laughs> what we're missing now, and when I asked this question on Twitter, Facebook, and I asked people, the same question I asked you guys, how their diets have changed. People mentioned read more SB Nation, read more Ringer. But a lot of people said, I haven't replaced it with anything. I'm not a huge sports fan. Um, and I just love the writing. And now I just follow sports less. Or people are looking for stories that are a little bit less sports focused, that are a little sillier, more sideways. And, you know, I was looking at the Ringer homepage today, which I don't I read a lot of Ringer stuff, but I don't typically go to the homepage. And it's kind of like actively alienating to non-sports fans. Like the way that they cover culture is, I think, a little more irreverent. And the stuff that they do in sports, I think the stuff that most people do in sports is like, who's going to get taken in the draft? Like, here's a really intensive analysis of Luka Doncic. And like stuff that's interesting to you, if, you know, like you, Gene, are 
like a big basketball fan, mm. but it's not at all interesting to somebody who's not already bought in right. to the NBA. I sort of wonder also like what happens to all of the coverage of the stories that are not peripheral to sports, but like, so just as an example, like uh, last year around this time, Derek Rose had a 50 point game, right? And there was this moment in which one of the broadcasters announced like, oh, Derek Rose is having this comeback season and um, he's overcome all this adversity off the court. They didn't really talk about what that adversity was. And so Laura Wagner at Desmond writes this really great piece about like the adversity they're talking about was a rape case. Like he was accused of raping someone. Um, and she wrote this piece sort of breaking down like what the case, like this, this is the thing we're not talking about when we're you know, giving him all these plaudits for having this big game after years and years of fighting injuries and, these, having, and overcoming these off the court issues. And I sort of wonder like how, where stories like that Right, we'll where, where, where's the whimsy gone, too? Absolutely. I mean, right. it's, the, it's the serious sort of no-bullshit skepticism, mm. but it's also, you know, you said snarky or silly, but it's really sort of whimsical. I mean, the, the and I don't want this to turn into a, entirely a conversation about Deadspin, but Deadspin's virtue was that it was able to make us all realize that sports inherently need to be fun mm -hmm. and funny, and there's a lot of absurdity that goes on. It sort of punctured holes in the, in the sort of serious takes about sports. It was the antidote to all of those assholes that are screaming on television. The saddest response that I got on Twitter to uh -huh. people, to, you know, when I was asking what people do now, somebody wrote, I've been spending more time watching the ESPN afternoon talking head shows. <laughs> Somebody also is like, I used to watch first take, but that was my second take because I read first because I read Deadspin first, but now first take actually is my first take, <laughs> which also was sad. But you know, back to you know what we were saying about serious stories or you know where to find stuff like that. I do find that the best stuff coming out now, like print Sports Illustrated still has a lot of good stories. The Wall Street Journal. Sports mm -hmm. Illustrated? What? It still exists, man. It comes out like once, you know, it's twice like a month, twice a year, twice a year. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is a conversation about the Sports Illustrated website never having worked and 15 years and 15 redesigns. They're going to get it right that on is the 16th one. Ugly um, website. Yeah. But there are like well-capitalized national media outlets New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal that have dedicated sports staffs that do good work. And I think, you know, what I would hope to see, what I'm interested in seeing is if there can be like some kind of absorption of the attitude um, and the idea that, you know, we can devote those kinds of resources and those kinds of, that kind of intellect to stories that aren't like, you know, serious investigations of wrong, you know, just like take sports seriously, but not necessarily on quote unquote serious subjects. Does that tone live, I mean, not trying to gas you up, but like that does sort of live a little bit on Slate, right? When Slate does sports coverage, but does that, does that live anywhere else in the internet? Um, sure, I mean, but it's not gonna be a dedicated place that you visit. You know, my habits have changed and look, like we have to prepare for the show. So Josh and I are during the week, mm -hmm. how the sausage is made, sending each other links um, of things that we should read and then aggregating a bunch of stuff that we inhale on Sunday to get ready for our normal taping on Monday. So I've, like Gene, was a, you know, type in DEA and then hit, well, not like Gene because he uses an RSS feed, but <laughs> I type in DEA into my into my 
browser and go right there. And I would do that multiple times a day because they were setting the tone for what I felt I needed to know. It was important to check to see what was going on. And what's striking to me, Josh, sort of piggybacks on what you were just talking about, which is that where is the money in sports journalism right now? The Athletic is a Silicon Valley venture. Who knows? They've invested hundreds of millions of dollars. They've built a gigantic staff of talented um, mainstream sports writers, both in the United States and in Canada and in Europe now covering international soccer. Um, Will that survive? I sure hope so, because it's employing a lot of people that I know and like and are good reporters. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Full employment program for Stefan's friends. <laughs> but, the, but the mainstream, you know, the big, well-capitalized newspapers and magazines that are still succeeding, and I guess it's really the Times and the Post mostly, it doesn't feel like anyone is rushing in to fill that void. I mean, Deadspin was generating 20 million visitors a month. Um, that's a lot of eyeballs. Mm-hmm. And... And I don't know whether it's that the Times and the Post are sort of reluctant to sort of chart out, you know, to, 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 to colonize that sort of snarky, irreverent, a little bit riskier in terms of the writing style space, or whether nobody's really thought about it or they feel like it would take too much effort to do it. I mean, credit to one of our local other sports writer friends, Dan Steinberg of the Post. He started his blog in 2004 at the Post, the DC sports bog, that was the first place that really like figured out that fans want to know about like you know the guy dumping shaving cream on somebody in the locker room or who's the real mascot that's running around the bases or anything sort of weird and offbeat, and that helped establish a tone for what the sports sports internet could be. But nobody's actually sort of filled the space that Deadspin has created and has left vacant. And maybe somebody will. Well, The Athletic is the smarter version of that Maven PowerPoint that I read. They're both betting the Maven dumbly, The Athletic, I think, smartly on hardcore sports fans and people willing to pay to read kind of insidery information about their teams. And I think what we're seeing with the hedge fund that bought Deadspin and what you really see in all these messages that we got and in our own experiences is that like the people with money don't understand is that there is a lot of money to be made an audience to be reached with sports content, um, sports stories that don't just appeal to those hardcore fans that appeal to people that just want good storytelling. They want good writing. And I think, you know, Lindsay, who we're going to hear from in a bit has an amazing newsletter on women's sports power plays um, that will talk about. There are a lot of great newsletters out there. There are a lot of great people on Twitter. But that's not, it's not a perfect substitute for a great publication mm-hmm. with a sensibility that collects a bunch of writers because I'm lazy and I don't want to get all these subscriptions and don't want to like, I want to be on Twitter as little as possible. Um, but there's also just the sense of discovery, right? Like the sense of discovery you get from reading a newspaper and finding a story that you don't know about or just from going to a site that you like, Gene, and um, finding something that you wouldn't have, you know, a story that's not about the Eagles or about the Sixers. Right. I mean, look, Twitter's an effective delivery system mm-hmm. for things that I want to read about because I follow certain people and I follow certain publications and I know that one of those people, if they haven't written something, will steer me to something else. But it's not an efficient right. delivery it's system. still really scattershot. Right. right. You can create a list of, like, people to follow, 
journalists like the ex dead spinners, right? But it's just, you know, like, I mean, it's all over the place. It, you know, they tweet when they tweet. It's not there when you want to read it, like it's sort of in your idle time. I mean, it's really like Twitter is a cesspool. I live on Twitter. Um, but for, like, all, the, for all that's bad time. about Twitter, I think it prizes the kind of irreverence and discovery and mm-hmm. just like weirdness that we really love. And so we need like we need to uh, kind of bottle that and put it somewhere that isn't Twitter mm-hmm. because that is I think what I'm what I'm missing now. And the newsletters are a you know a, a not super recent development but they are there are more of them that I'm subscribing to because people like Lindsay and Patrick Ruby and Eric Nussbaum are generating interesting stories every week but that's great but they're not monetizing it as far as I know. Lindsay can disabuse me of that notion by telling us she's pulling in six figures from her newsletter, but I don't (laughs) think that she is. Sorry, Lindsay, you should be. Um, So it's, again, that's sort of the sad part is that, hey, here's some really good analysis and journalism that is that people are doing for fun or in the hopes that they will be rewarded. Last thought is, as Tom Lay said when we talked to him and other Deadspin folks, just if anybody in the audience today or listening has like $20 million, just <laughs> let us know. He said 10 to 15. 10 to 15. Well, look, the price has gone up. We'll take 10. The price has gone up. Gene, thanks much. We'll have you back on uh, right. in a bit. Talk soon. Appreciate you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Don Harper Nelson is one of the greatest athletes in arguably the most competitive event in track, the 100-meter hurdles. She won gold at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing and followed it up with silver in London in 2012. She medaled at two world championships and won four U.S. championships, among other hardware. So it was completely understandable that last year, at age 34, Harper Nelson announced her retirement. I'm going to miss it, she said, but I can honestly say that in my heart of hearts that I feel the pull more now to be a mother than I feel the pull for track. She and her husband, Alonzo Nelson, had their first child, a girl named Harper, in March, but the pull of track didn't go away, and last month, Harper Nelson, the mother, not the baby, announced that she was returning to attempt to qualify for Team USA and the Olympics next summer in Tokyo. It is our great pleasure to welcome up now Dawn Harper Nelson. Dawn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, guys. We're thrilled to have you here. Harper is unfortunately not in the audience. Yes, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Next time. Um, In that quote I read, Dawn, Mm -hmm. you framed mothering and hurdling as separate desires. Mm -hmm. It seemed like you decided pretty quickly that you could do both. You were posting video (laughs) on Twitter of yourself walking over hurdles. 
seven months pregnant. Yeah. Hurdles are really high. I don't know if you've ever seen a hurdle. 33 inches? Yeah. Yeah, they're tall. Serena Williams, of course, returned in her mid-30s after having a baby. The sprinter Allison Felix is trying to make the 2020 Olympics just like you are in her mid-30s also after having a baby. First, I got to say that you and Alonzo seem like great parents. <laughs> that video you posted on Twitter the other day of Harper crawling is totally adorable. See, Come I'm to Baba. Ready. I'm not ready, Baba. guys. Like, stop it, Harper. Like, just knock her over. No, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> So what made you decide to come back to the track? Um, as you stated um, in the statement that I said before, you know, at the time I knew there were three things. I've always obviously more dreams, but there were three things that really pulled on me just throughout my life. I want to be Olympic champion, a wife and a mom. Um, and at that time, I just I was ready for someone that was really low to be looking up going, mama, mama. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's me. Hey, sweetie. Um, I was ready for that. I had enjoyed track, had given my, you know, um, Given my life to track for many, many years. Like more than 20. But, I mean, you started running in middle school. I was 12 years old. Yes. Um, it, like I said, it consumed me. It truly did. And at the time, I just knew to be a mom, I felt like I needed to step away from the sport to be the type of mother I wanted to be. And I was ready for a little bitty. Me and my husband had talked about it um, about two years before. I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to retire. And then I was like, and he's like, I know you want to run. I was like, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, my husband was so gracious to support me in that. But... It was time, but as you can see, track just pulled me back. <laughs> well, and as an athlete and as a, a woman, it's a really mm -hmm. hard decision to make because when you have a kid, the money stops immediately coming in. So how did that factor into the decision? Did you have a kid later than you might have otherwise? That's exactly um, what happened. I never imagined I would be, what, uh, 34. I had, was just about to turn 35 when I had my daughter. Um, for me, like I said, I want to be an Olympic champion, wife and a mom. But in that decision, I knew that one dream had to end for the other one to begin. And I knew that financially it would stop the day that I got pregnant. And but in as a mother, you're like, that's a huge concern financially that I have to. How am I going to support? OK, well, I better save my money throughout my career. And so I was raised with parents that said, look, sweetie track is not going to last. I don't care how much you love it. It's not going to last always. So financially, you know, you save your money, you do well, but I knew it was going to end. And so, like you said, literally the day that I announced, I just said, we're done with track and we're chopping it up. And it was really sad because anyone up until this point, you know, as you know, the huge controversy with these uh, shoe contracts and stuff, thank God they've made the adjustment. But any, before that day, it was such a reality that many of us women never thought to even challenge the idea of adding it in our contract. What for? It's it's a fact. You can you, once you get pregnant, you're done. You're old news. You're just accepted. So right. And what Dawn's referring to is that Nike earlier this year came under criticism for its contracts with women athletes that either suspended or terminated benefits and pay, or 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 mandated a reduction in pay mm -hmm. to athletes who became pregnant and then didn't pay them during their pregnancies or during a maternity leave after under pressure from Allison Felix and others mm -hmm. Nike rescinded that and now is guaranteeing pay to their athletes you were a Nike athlete you are not a Nike we can applaud athlete that. anymore yeah you can applaud that yeah exactly um, you had given birth already when mm -hmm. the athletes started criticizing Nike and this became yes. public first in a couple of pieces in the New York Times when that came out did you feel like 
you should have spoken up? Were you, you know, were you concerned about that? Or was it like, hey, I made a decision to retire. This isn't going to affect me. No, I definitely was concerned about that because, I mean, it just had been something that had been on my mind for my whole life. The thing is, when it caught fire, it caught fire. And so it was, you know, I made my, you know, comments and posts and I did interviews and was asked about it. But at the time, I didn't feel the pull to try and be another face for it because in track and field, we had some very dominant women that were on the forefront. And I saw change being made and I saw it moving forward. And I was very happy about that. And so the fact that, the hard work that these women are putting in during their pregnancies is being respected in the contracts now. I was like, yay. So <laughs> the thing that I didn't really understand about this from the beginning is that you mentioned Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. This, her story was so inspirational. Right. And if we're being crass, it's like good for marketing because mm -hmm. people love hearing stories about women, uh, mothers yep. and their comebacks. And so it doesn't make sense to me that mm -hmm. a company like Nike wouldn't see that or understand that. Um, yeah, I think uh, right now uh, they seem to have, you know, the women that they're supporting. They've been under fire. They feel they've made the adjustment. They have the women that they're supporting. They're pretty much like the women that we have. We're going to support them. I don't really think we're going to take on any new ones right now. You know, it just kind of seems like that's where they're at. They feel like the, the, the fire's kind of finally going down. Um, and that's really what it is. I mean, just to, the fact is they're supporting who they have. They don't want to bring it on anymore. What's it like to train as uh, while you're pregnant <laughs> and as a new mom? You're adjusting to a different body. Mm -hmm. Are there people that you talk to to get advice there is this community now of mm -hmm. women who've gone through this and i let me add there too it must be incredibly disorienting to be so in command of your body mm -hmm. as an elite athlete and then to <laughs> not have it respond the way that you've been used to it responding your whole life you have no idea <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny i'm sitting here talking about being a mom i mean this is crazy so let me just let you in for a second um <laughs> i know my body inside and out i had to own it right i had to beat it down daily tell it look i know you're on the ground but i need you to get up so we can finish this workout or your coach will kill you physically like you know um and so that was just my daily living i had a set schedule i was very strict very i mean in order to be on top of the podium, I had experienced it and I knew what it took. That's the life that I lived. I gave into it. I loved it. And then you get pregnant. And then your husband walks by in cologne and you're like, why would you wear that? <laughs> and he's like, babe, I've been wearing it for seven years. And I'm like, well, you're not wearing it anymore. Um, and then all of a sudden you are going to the track and you're working out and you're like, I used to do four laps. I'm going to do two. I'm going to do a straightaway. Um, then, you know, I'm out there and honestly, it was really the best that I would feel all day though, still. Even though obviously my workouts weren't as long and they weren't as intense, sitting on the couch, I just felt like this huge just lump and I was just like, this is terrible. But then when I would go to the track, it felt great. The hard part was after I had my daughter, mentally, I'm back, right? Like I'm, I've had my daughter, this body, I'm dropping the weight and coming. No, I remember my husband saying, okay, you know, let's try and hit this time on the track. I started training a month after I had my daughter and trying to get out there and write. I, Cause you know, I'm just, I'm a hurdler. You know, you gotta be a little mm, to wanna run 10 barriers. And so really just saying, trying to get off the line to literally push, my body had nothing. It was almost like trying to get out of this couch. It was like, 
And I was like, sweetie. And he's like, sweetie, you're like a month and a half after having a baby. And I'm like, but I'm a hurdler. Like, I'm supposed to move, baby, when I say move. And my body, it was so foreign to me. I literally felt like I would say, excuse me, ma'am, come up here, and I want you to do all these things. And you would say, what are you talking about? That's what it felt like. So foreign. So that was really, really hard to accept that I had to go slow. I wasn't used to that. So who did you turn to for solace, conversation, advice? So someone I turned to is uh, an athlete from New Zealand. Her name is Valerie Adams. She was so sweet. Um, Early, you had even asked. She's a shot putter. She's not a sprinter. Listen, she knows pain. She knows motherhood. She knows the demands of track and field. Um, She knows that the mental side of it. And so for me, that's really what I kind of needed to tap into you know, my mother and my mother-in-law support is just so great. Sweetie, you know, we're here for you. That's nice. But to know what I used to feel like and what I want to feel like again, I need to talk to someone that's going to say, she's on her second child, Valerie Adams is on her second child. So I need to talk to someone that's like, I get it. It's going to take time, but it's still there. You can do it. You can still do it. So for her, we've talked, we, I mean, fingers just burning, going back and forth on the phone. So she's been really supportive. Stefan, should we talk about the uh, Great Olympic Triumph of 2008? Yes, let us, uh, let us play. We're going to play the <sighs> video of you winning the gold medal in 2008 in Beijing. That's okay. Go. Let's go, let's go. And it's a fair start. Here's the first hurdle, and Lolo Jones and Sally McCullen are there together. Here comes Dawn Harper to join them. Lolo Jones has the lead, but she hit the hurdle. She hit hurdle number nine, the next to last hurdle. Lolo Jones hit the hurdle, and Dawn Harper wins it. Lolo Jones hit the hurdle and did not get a medal. Just like in 2004, Tom, a UCLA Bruins, Dawn Harper out of nowhere benefiting from the mistake that Lolo Jones make heart heartbreak for Lolo Jones and Dawn Harper she's the fourth best in her camp and now she is the Olympic champion remember she barely qualified for this US Olympic team and Dawn Harper at 24 years of age is the Olympic champion in 2008 <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, first, what's it like watching that? Does it get old? N- never. <laughs> no. Um, it is, it's, that's where my life literally in that 12 seconds completely changed. No contract, really just having a hope and a dream, like, ooh, I pray this is in God's will. Oh my God, I won. Like, literally, it was, it was just like that. No contract. You were like living next to a frat house. In a frat house. In, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, don't know. I'm going to all that credit. Because it how was many, how, how many jobs were you working? Three. Doing? Academic coordinator at UCLA. Um, I was a tutor. And I coached. And then I also trained for the, it was, listen, oh my God. How were the frat parties? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, it was so dirty in there. It was so <laughs> dirty. I mean, you laugh. You must experience. It was so, no, this. They just didn't care. And I'm like, so I would have my food literally in bins with my name on it. Like, please don't touch this. I have $5 to my name and I spent $5 on food and please don't touch it. It was so dirty in there. What is striking about that video um, is that (laughs) the announcer who's Tom Hammond of NBC, he seems almost disappointed Mm -hmm. that Lolo Jones didn't win the race. Otto Bolden, the, the color commentator, has to sort of recover and say, oh, yeah, Don Harper won um, out of nowhere. 
Now, this is 11 years ago. It's mm -hmm. old news. We don't want you to rehash Lolo Jones because you're trying to make the Olympics. She was on Celebrity Big Brother this year. Um, yeah. Dawn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I do wonder, how, like, how, have, how did that change your thinking about what it meant to be an athlete and what you had to do to stand up for yourself and get your story told, to get sponsorships, to get attention, to get media. And did it happen for you right away? No, it did not happen right away. Um, and a big part of that was because um, literally, guys, I was someone with a hope and a dream. I had no contract. I had no agent. So if you want to get- No a shoe contract. Yes, no shoe contract, meaning no money, literally. And so if you wanted to get in touch with me, how would you? You don't, I mean, and my social media, I didn't even have a Facebook. I think at that time, my best friend started my Facebook. She's like, Dawn, people want to know. And I'm like, no one cares. I'm just Dawn. She's like, you are an Olympic champion. Start a page. So she asked me like, okay, your middle name. Okay. And then, you know, so she started that for me. And it just, it took me time to really realize that I had a presence um, because I think after I won that race, there was, you know, just kind of a lot of criticism on, kind of on how I won the race when I was confused because it's 10 barriers and you have to clear all 10. My whole career, it's always been 10 hurdles. Um, and so for me, that was hard to really deal with knowing that I get it. Maybe your favorite didn't win, but how many times have you learned about a new competitor and you're like, oh, they're just, they're a dog too. They're a monster. You know what I mean? They're a beast as well. And then all of a sudden you're like, I kind of like them too. I see they have fight. I see they have grit. And so it was kind of disheartening to see that it took people years to kind of, I would say, respect the gold medal um, that I earned. And um, so once I did get an agent and stuff, then it turned into, oh, well, they want to know how many followers you have on social media. And I was like, I don't know. I won. I don't know. Does that help? And they're like, well, you know, they want to. And so I just, it really did mess with my self-esteem, to be honest. And I wish that it wouldn't have. You hear about it. You know, you, you see all these things on TV, like, believe in yourself. Believe, believe. And you would think that I would have believed in myself. It's supposed but to be the greatest moment of your it life. It is. You reach the pinnacle, and then you're told you're still not good enough because you don't have enough followers. Are you kidding me? Like, and then I was like, I can't, there's nothing I can do then. I quit. Like, I quit. I can't do it. And so what I did was I turned this into, um, well, if you don't want to, I'm going to make you respect it. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to win every race, so you have to mention my name. You don't, you don't want to endorse me? Well, then the person you want to endorse is going to come in behind me. So you're like, well, our girl got, thank you. <laughs> And so that was really the mentality that I took. So if you wanted to talk about your girl, you're going to have to say, well, this girl got second to Dawn. Well, this girl got to Dawn. That was the only thing I could do. And so that was the mentality I took. You won the Diamond League, which is the pinnacle of um, track and field four times. Putting up row, the four. One, two, three, five. That was just there. Like, here comes Dawn. I was which like, is unprecedented. Cool. You won a silver in 2012. And mm -hmm. we should say that the 100-meter hurdles... I think, Absolutely. would you agree, is the most competitive, smallest margin in any event. And so the idea, you know, maybe it could be a fluke one time, <laughs> but like all of those times, it's not a fluke. How did you approach the fact that this is a race where you could run Anybody could run a great race, and the U.S. in particular is so stacked. Yeah, the U.S. And you could finish fourth, or you could finish, you know, fifth. The it's U.S. was one, two, three in um, in 2016 in the Olympics, and 
Dawn didn't qualify for that team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tore my hip um, right before the semis. So that was a fun time, as you <laughs> could imagine. Um, so dealing, how do I mentally deal with that? I have been blessed to have a coach that is the best hurdle coach in the world. His name is Bobby Kersey. And in order to be in his group, uh, when I like literally had no contract, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm saying it because it's like you got to understand the beginning, right? So no contract. But beside me was Michelle Perry, two-time world champion, um, and Nike at the time. She's just decked out in all Nike. Her name is on her shoes. She is Michelle Perry. Joanna Hayes, the defending Olympic champion. She's a Nike athlete, all Nike. Joanna Hayes on her shoes. Uh, a crosstown rival, USC. She had just came over. Jenny Powell. She had just signed this huge, one of the biggest uh, contracts in track and field. She comes over, all Nike, name on, she's the second coming. And then there was me, right? And remember, to make the Olympic team, there's only three spots. There were four hurdlers in my group, and I was the only one that didn't have a name, no money, no nothing. And so to enter into that every single day, I had to tell myself, you have to believe like you've never believed before just to wake up in the morning and to have the nerve to step on that track. So each year that I competed in track and field, People ask me, like, you just, you're always so happy when you win. Like, why you've done it before? Because it is a fight. Every single, 0.007 is what I made the team by. Third place, and then went on to win gold. So that's what you have to believe. 0.007, that I can beat this girl by 0.007. If you blink and think for a split second in the hurdles, like, oh, maybe, well, you need to go home. You know, so, you know, I mean, that, that's why I feel like, for me, I've been able to be dominant for so many years and you had that it's an amazing decade um but in track unlike in men's sports Mm -hmm. in america there's no nine-figure contract (laughs) waiting for you at the end of that decade educate us a little bit about the economics of being an international track and field superstar Mm -hmm. so uh once i did win um i was blessed where nike did give me a contract and so that's when things began to change because before i was running at smaller meets there was a considered a a b and a c circuit and so if you competed at a c circuit you would maybe go overseas and run a race for like 400 euros uh-huh, you get it. Um, and so you would try and have at least four to five races maybe that you would run to try and accumulate enough money to pay off your plane ticket, first of all, because they'll give you like, oh, a smaller meets, maybe 100 euros to come over. I said overseas. No plane ticket is 100 euros, right? And so the first two races would maybe be enough to then cover the plane ticket. So then the next three would be now what I would take home in my pocket and you still have to pay your agent. And oh my gosh, right? So now that I've, won the Olympics now things change where I'm one of the top tier athletes and I would fly over business class on their dime now I'm in the A meets uh, A circuit meets um, to cross the line at the time it was Golden League so it was 16,000 for first Um, on top of you know contract bonuses that you would receive you have your own room in a you know at the hotel so just night and day but remember though this tier never changes. So you ha- you're constantly running against people that have arrived, so to speak, and then the ones that are just hungry. So that goes back to how do you stay focused or how do you believe? Because there's someone like me that ran at a C meet and she finally got her chance to run at an A meet. She's coming for my head. And so in track and field, that's, that's every single day. That's still to this day, though, that I mean, and the money that you have, though, you still have to allot money for physio, um, massage, like physio, massage, your coach, travel, nutrition, all these things. So, we wanted to ask you about doping uh, and track. There are 
been reports for years now, and not just reports, findings about Russia mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. having a massive statewide effort to give performance-enhancing yeah. drugs to athletes. We should also say that in 2017, you were sanctioned for three months for taking a blood yep. pressure medication. Yep. What do you, um, just can you kind of explain what happened there? And also just what are your thoughts about competing in this sport where doping is like often the first thing that people think about or mm-hmm. wonder about or ask about? Yes, so I'm um, explaining 2017. So at the end of 2000, well, I have high blood pressure. This is something that I didn't want to say, I didn't want to accept. Um, I was angry at the idea that I had high blood pressure because what else could I do to be the healthiest I could be? But seriously, I, you know, I mean, my nutrition is ridiculous, right? Um, Not working out enough. Right, exactly. And so, you know, you work out, you're sleeping right, you're eating right, I'm doing all these things. And to really accept that I had high blood pressure wasn't something I was willing to do until I was forced. Um, At the end of 2016, my blood pressure skyrocketed. It was 189 over 117. And Right, you get it. And so obviously I couldn't breathe. It felt like someone was choking me and I had an extreme headache. And me and my husband, we rushed to the hospital and they this is how serious athletes take um take taking some type of medication. So the doctor comes in and they check and they're like, Oh my good of course they rush me to the bag and they check me and they're like, Okay, well I need to give you this medicine and I say, No, because I need to know what you're giving me because and my husband, he starts crying. Because in this moment, I did, I consciously chose track over my life. Because I'm like, I can't test positive. (gasps) Well, you could die, and then you won't test for anything, right? Uh, But that wasn't something I was comprehending. And so um, I still said no, and I, they kept me there for a while, and my blood pressure went down to a reasonable number. It was like 150 over something. So I go home, the next day I go to my doctor, and they tell me, okay, we're gonna give you this medication. I look it up, and I say, okay, I can take this. Luckily, I'm someone that keeps up with everything, and so they, um, I end up getting tested, and they're like, you tested positive for a diuretic. It's not possible. I looked it up, and I showed them on USADA's website, my search number, you know, your search engine, they give you your confirmation number to show you looked at this time, you checked your medicine. Well, on the right, abbreviated, was the letters HRZ for hydrochlorothiazide for the diuretic. I thought I was going to die because I looked up the medicine, and I missed those, I, I don't take medicine, so I missed that. And the blessing was I had all of my paperwork, and so by this time I had fought it for three months, and they were pretty much like, okay, we trust you. You haven't competed for three months. We're going to do a three-month ban. going to backdate it. Go compete. Um, so that sucked, but I appreciated that they made me do my due diligence and prove that I had it, that all these things were in place. And so I was blessed enough to be able to still compete in the sport that I love. But I think I'm forgetting what you, the other question Russia. you asked about. Russia. Russia. Listen, listen, with Russia. So let's just be honest. The system that we have, they clearly have a system in place to beat our system because there's no way that you have this many athletes. One athlete, Two, you tell them you're banned for life, this is outrageous. But what we're finding in their systems, and how many of them, I'm sorry, it can't just be a coach allowed this. Um, And so, because also for world championships and Olympics, we've had it where now you backdate it, and there are so many athletes that are getting their medals upgraded because of Russian athletes that tested positive in those games or in the world championships. I mean, that's just outrage. You stole money, that moment from them on the podium. You just can't, you can't have that. So I'm really happy that they're... Does that enter your mind when you're on the starting line? Yes. 
Yes, it does because you understand it's supposed to be a level playing field. We're all getting tested, but you just there's a part of you that's like, I just wonder if in ten years from now someone's going to say, actually, that one girl that lined up with you, and that actually happened before. It was a girl from Turkey in 2012. She got fifth, so she was behind me. But still, that person that got sixth really got fifth. That means something, you know, just for you. So that is very disheartening. All right, dr- dramatic tonal shift. Dun, dun, dun. Stefan, do you want to introduce our, our final clip? It's something really serious. Why don't we just play it? I have no idea what this is. Olympian Dawn found a gown that she gives a perfect 10, but she's nervous that her mom will disqualify its full silhouette. I like it a lot. I'm really worried about what mom is going to say about this dress. And I'm afraid if she doesn't love the dress, Dawn will never say yes to the dress. What do you think, mom? Be honest. Come on, Mom. I just wouldn't have thought that you would have chosen this. But to see it on you, baby's looking good. It's beautiful. Mom! They are crazy. They really pulled that up. (laughs) Say yes to the dress. All right, so how did you get on Say Yes to the Dress? And Mom, I gotta say... She kind of saved herself there. She did. Yeah. She did. Um, so, yes, I absolutely love the show. So I watch it all the time. And so I'm not going to lie. I reached out to my agent like, do you think they will allow me to come on the show? And they're like, oh, my God, tell her to come out right now. So we got on the plane. We went out there. And it is a sea of dresses. Um, and thank God they're good at what they do. Because I walked by the back room and I was like, we're never going to find a dress. It's just too many dresses. But they pulled this dress out. And oh my. So real quick. My family wanted me to wear a form-fitting dress. I'm in tight clothes all day. That's my job. I don't want to wear tight. I don't need to show my shape. They know I have a shape. I want to feel like a princess. So that's the huge fluffy dress. It was four and a half feet wide. Um, I wanted both my parents to walk me down. They couldn't because they didn't have enough room down the aisle. So, but it was awesome sauce. Amazing. Don Harper Nelson, everybody. Thank you so much, Don. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, next up, we are going to bring out our illustrious journalistic panel. They're journalistic luminaries, Stefan. First, let's welcome back Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch. Hey, Gene, come on. Next, we have Lindsay Gibbs. Uh, Lindsay is one of the hosts of the wonderful podcast, Burn It All Down. And as we mentioned before, she has her own newsletter. It is called Power Plays. You should all subscribe. We'll wait. Hey, Lindsay. Finally, Dave McKenna, formerly of Washington City Paper, formerly of Deadspin, Currently number one in our hearts. Welcome, Dave. <laughs> Everybody comfy? You comfy, Dave McKenna? Good enough. I can't see anybody. You don't need to see anybody. Just look, just look me in the eye. You'll be fine. This segment, panelists and audience, 
It is about hard choices in sports. Some of our questions are going to be for the group as a whole. Some will be for you guys specifically. We intend to challenge your fortitude, your stamina, and possibly your patience. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Lindsay. Oh, God. (laughs) All right. Imagine in a world much like our own. It's a rematch of the infamous 2018 U.S. Open final between Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. That was the match where Serena lost after getting penalized a game by chair umpire Carlos Ramos for supposed coaching violation, racket abuse, and then verbal abuse. But that is in the past. This is the 2020 U.S. Open. And through some strange sequence of events that we want to get into here, you, Lindsey Gibbs, are the chair umpire. (laughs) (laughs) This match is close throughout. It's uncontroversial until it's six all in the decisive third set tiebreaker. Serena wins the next point, putting her just one away from her record-tying 24th Grand Slam title. Osaka, in the meantime, gets angry at herself for making an error and smashes her racket on the court. Doesn't cost her a point. Thank God, the first code violation for racket abuse, it's just a warning. Hmm. But you, Lindsey Gibbs, chair umpire, you then see Naomi Osaka's coach out of the corner of your eye. (laughs) He's clearly sending her a signal to approach the net on the next point. It's an obvious violation of the rules. Mm. If you call it, it's a point penalty. The match is over. Serena wins. You can't pretend you didn't see it. You know, the cameras surely saw it too. If you choose not to call it, then everyone in the world will know that you made that choice. But then again... Coaches signal players all the time. Is it really that big a deal? Is that how a Grand Slam final should be decided on match point? But then again, again, (laughs) would it be fair that Serena got penalized for a coaching violation in 2018 and her opponent didn't get penalized for it in 2020? What do you do? I feel like I'm taking the SAT or something. (laughs) I need multiple choice. Oh, I absolutely ignore it. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Not even no qualms about it ignore the coaching violation because as an umpire I realize these things are silly and it's easy for me to forget what I just saw I don't know I don't have a problem with that one but that's probably because I'm bringing a lot of bias in because I hate the rule like I think that it should so really you as a chair umpire have managed to smuggle in your disdain for the rules without the authorities knowing it oh absolutely I mean you didn't tell me I had to leave my biases at the door <laughs> Wait, which rule do you hate? Huh? Which rule do you hate? I mean, I think that we, coaching from the stands, like, I don't freak out about it. Like, I, I'm not, like, a big fan of it. Like, I'm not like, yay, everyone should come on court and, and be coaching. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I Maybe I think it's because I think as a coach, I couldn't watch it without, like, automatically just instructing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think we're a- asking coaches and parents and everybody not to, like, motion something is, like, against... It's just like, that's just their nature. Like whether the athlete's looking for it or not, yeah, that's, you know, what they're, that's just what they're doing. So I think I probably would be a little conflicted because I would be sitting at that, you know, and I would, would, you know, I, I do think I would take my role seriously in this hypothetical. Now let's add to the hypothetical oh, that gosh. Serena Williams <laughs> sees you oh, see gosh. Osaka's coach and comes over to the chair and says, listen, Lindsey Gibbs tennis writer and fan and chair umpire for some reason. (laughs) I lost this tournament because of this a few years ago. You're going to let this go? I'm Serena Williams. I just had a baby. (laughs) Did she have another baby? (laughs) This is a lot of babies. Um, Okay, 
obviously, if Serena was ye- was yelling at me, I would do whatever she said in that moment. <laughs> Because, like, it's Serena, and I love her. Now, if I was being rational and, like, had time to think about it, I would probably... S- I, I, no, I, no, there's no way I could, I could defy Serena. Serena saw it. I do think that's a game changer. I can't even pretend it's not. Good way to bring that in. Yeah. Stefan. It was, Thank you. This is terrifying. <laughs> well, before we move on, I, know, I was rereading a story you wrote for Think Progress after the Serena-Osaka match in 2018, and you said it was, like, incredibly hard for you to even think about what to write because there were so many different emotions in that match. And Mm -hmm. as an analyst, you could like see it from all different directions. And so this is kind of a tool to just like get back in that moment. And this for me, like in the last couple of years was kind of the most fraught incident in sports and was just like in the moment. And still two years later, it's still like really hard to think about what we would have done and you know, how, how we could have handled it. Yeah, and I think that goes back, you were saying, like, what would I say to Serena? And I was like, part of me would want to say, well, it wasn't the umpire's initial decision for the coaching violation. It was your reaction to it that ended up losing the match. Like, you had control over, like, how you reacted. But I also know that, like, that reaction doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Right. So I can't say how I would react. And it's easy for me to judge, like, from an armchair, not being a woman, specifically a black woman in tennis, who's been scrutinized and had her emotions policed in such high, you know, and and under such, like, like, tough spotlight so you know whereas that's why I stopped myself before when I you know when my head my initial reaction of Serena saw it you know would would be to say (laughs) Serena you you know it was about your reaction to the thing that's why you actually you know lost the match but I don't know if I could really tell her that because you can't like feelings and moments can't be you can't take them out of the vacuum to police them Mm Thank you, Lindsay. You you handled uh, being under the spotlight very oh well. Oh my gosh! That's a good answer. Uh, All right, here's our. Uh... <laughs> All right, now our first group question. It's the week before college football's national championship game. You're an investigative reporter for a major for a major national sports outlet. Ohio State is playing in that game. Their star defensive end Chase Young, who went to Dematha High School. Um, <laughs> was suspended for two games earlier this year for reportedly taking money from a family friend so that his girlfriend could watch him play in the Rose Bowl. Well, now you've learned of an additional (laughs) rules violation, this one more substantive. In this hypothetical, Chase Young has been getting paid under the table by Nike all year long. Let's call it $50,000 a month. You, the investigative reporter, believe NCAA rules are dumb, and also that there's nothing wrong with college athletes getting paid. You also know that this is an interesting story for all sorts of reasons, but if you publish it, Chase Young is going to get suspended and miss the national title game, and Ohio State is going to have to forfeit all of its games. So, do you publish the story and destroy this poor, innocent student (laughs) athlete, or do you violate your sacred duties as a reporter and sit on the scoop. Let's start with you, Dave McKenna, hard-hitting investigative reporter. <laughs> well, I'm also a hard-hitting DeMatha fan, so I would definitely just, I, I would write the story, but I'd, I'd try to balance it out, or at the, put the salaries of the coaches of Ohio State, and, um, and again, I, I would, but you'd have to write, you'd have to write this, this story. But 
at this point, it, like I, I was very surprised that he got suspended for like tick, what seemed to be ticky tack things. A guy of that level who's going to be the, probably the number one overall pick. Um, that I thought we were past that. That we just let those things slide. I thought the NCAA, rather than journalists letting stuff slide, would just let stuff slide. It seems like instead there's been a couple uh, ticky tack violations severely punished, like they're getting their last licks in before mm-hmm. before the rules change. Before the rules change, mm-hmm. right? And we had two this year: um, Young and. Um, James Wiseman, Wiseman. Mm. Um, who plays for Memphis, who was suspended for his current coach, Penny Hardaway, paying the moving expenses for his mother to bring him to Memphis when Penny Hardaway was not coaching Memphis several years ago. But nobody really believes that the, the, the sum total of their, of their benefits are the moving expenses. And who right. cares if who they cares? are or they yeah. aren't? Yeah. Do you think Chase Young would feel better about being suspended for the title game because Dave McKenna's story had included additional context? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, it kind of sucks I'm saying out of the game, but there was that context. But Love who, the context. He mentioned that Urban Meyer made yeah. a lot of money once. Who wouldn't write it, though, unless you work for Ohio State? Like, who wouldn't write that story? Could you run it? After the national title game? You can do whatever you want. Yeah, you're the investigative reporter, Jane. What would you do? So, I mean, if you ran it after the title game, they would probably retroactively punish Ohio State. They would lose the, if they won the national title, they would probably lose it. They would have to forfeit their games retroactively. Yeah, but forfeiting games, it's like once the games are happened, it's like, who cares if the games get forfeited retroactively? Who remembers that Reggie Bush didn't actually win a national championship? (laughs) Yes. The NCAA is so corrupt, though. Like, you know what I mean? Like, well, I mean, and Josh, I mean, you've been, I mean, what would you do? You're a huge moralizer when it comes to these stories that, that, that certain reporters do that nail um, college athletes for things like taking money. Well, if it was LSU, I definitely LSU. wouldn't report it. <laughs> <laughs> because some things are more important than journalism. <laughs> college football of, from my home state being one of them. Yeah, I think you've got to report it. But these first two questions are both getting at, like what you said, Lindsay, like, what is your duty in life to uphold or support rules that you don't believe are just when your role, whether it's being a chair umpire or a reporter, would seemingly require you to do so? Like, uh, you know, do you quit the job? Do you, like, sit on it? Do you pretend that you don't see it? Like, that's what I think these are kind of interesting, interesting dilemmas. Yeah, and I think, like, you would have to report it, but... focus on the systems themselves, right? And I know, realize, like, that would have negative consequences still for, like, some Ohio State fans. And, you know, and, like, they're losing their, having their wins vacated. But to me, the fact that there is this whole, like, this one player is getting the money, which is great, right? But there's so many players who aren't, who are also putting their bodies on the line, who are also, um, you know, putting you know, their lives and their brains on the line um, in these games who aren't getting any benefits, who are going through so many things. And so this system, they found a way for it to work uh, somewhat for like the top, top like 0.5% of, you know, the athletes that we're talking about, but it's still exploiting all of the athletes. So I think to me, it's just another example of, if, if this were true, I'm sure nothing of the sort is actually happening. Um, but it's just another way of pointing out that the system is broken. Yeah, I hope it's not happening either. I hope it's actually $100,000. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. All right, this is a question for you, Dave McKenna. The hedge fund bozos that oh, bought Deadspin have agreed to sell. Oh, but there's only one bidder who will meet their asking price and agree to retain the staff. That 
Bitter is a businessman here in D.C. He owns a local football team. (laughs) (laughs) One that he's driven into the ground on account of years of incompetent management. Buying Deadspin is a chance to redeem himself. He's not only going to buy it, he agrees to have no involvement in the site under penalty of death. That's bullshit. Dan Snyder only has one condition, and it involves a local sports writer. Snyder sued Dave McKenna for a story he wrote in the city paper. It was 100% accurate. It was also extremely well-written, entertaining. The guy who wrote it is very handsome. Um, It was a frivolous lawsuit. Snyder dropped it without getting anything, no correction, no nothing, because he didn't deserve anything. But now he's sensing an opportunity to extract the concession he's always wanted. He'll save Deadspin for America if McKenna apologizes publicly for writing mean things about him. Among them, that Snyder sold fans expired airline peanuts. Always my favorite one. What do you do, Dave McKenna, in the face of this disgusting, indecent request? Oh my God. (laughs) Before I answer the question, I'll probably ask you to repeat it, but I I, I wouldn't be here. Disgusting, indecent I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Dan Snyder. I would, like, the only, the New York Times has mentioned me three times, probably, in, in my career. And it's always because big, mean people are trying to make me lose my job or <laughs> taking my job away. Uh, like, Tony Kornheiser got me fired from a $75 a week horse racing gig what? 20 years ago. What? And that, and that's that became, a great story. That's a very good story. Yes. And uh, then comes Dan Snyder plucking me out of anonymity and um, suing me for because he wanted to get me fired. first tried to get me fired, and that didn't work, so he sued, thinking that would cause the publication to, to, to get rid of me. And then now a, a big, meanie hedge fund people take over <laughs> Deadspin, and... Uh, Fast forward, and, and becomes, you're sitting here a, Yes, it becomes a, a, a national story. I mean, I'm, I'm a small part of it, but again, they, they, I was part of it. Ultimately, I mean, we're, we're destined. Me and Dan are going to get together someday. Yeah. <laughs> 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 So, if he would save Deadspin, it'd be great. I think it would. I'd be all for it. And even if you so, would go on North Korean television and say, <laughs> in your hostage Snyder. video, well, he's incapable of doing anything to save himself. Though, like he, he, he has done. Like he, he used to show up. He doesn't. He used to show up once a year. The Scrooge character, DC's number one Scrooge character, he used to show up once a year to, to give out turkeys to. to uh, uh, disadvantaged families in Prince George's County. He doesn't even give out the turkeys anymore. He's like giving up that ghost. He's just a hundred percent Mr. Scrooge now. So, but like, uh, could he? I mean, with the Ravens game, got multiple times the audience of the Redskins game TV ratings this weekend in DC, mm. which so things are so bad. See, it, will he do something? I mean, he needs to do something to help his. Uh, oh, he's his done it in this scenario. He's done it. It's over. You just have to apologize. No, I mean, what would I? I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. <laughs> Sorry, we're going. Deadspin's going to have to find another twenty million. Yeah. Still on the hunt. Gene Demby, Lindsey Gibbs, Dave McKenna. Thank you for playing along oh, with man. us. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more Hang Up and Listen live from the Hamilton. In our bonus segment this week, you'll hear more from our Hard Choices segment, wherein we'll force our esteemed panelists to make impossible decisions about Colin Kaepernick and Kobe Bryant. To hear those conversations, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. And now it is time for After Balls. And for those of you who don't know, every week we do a monologue, Josh and I, and we name it. We give it a name. And to help us give a name to this week's After Ball segment, please welcome back to the stage Don Harper Nelson. Welcome back, Don. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. All right. So we're looking for a name. We would like you to tell the story of not having any spikes <laughs> mm-hmm when you ran in the 2008 Olympics in Beijing and won the gold medal. You did not have shoes. Tell us about that story. So, um, once again, how I told you, my training group, there were these amazing other three athletes that were decked out in Nike, and then there was me. So what I wore to practice every day was my um, old UCLA gear that you are so hard on your spikes after a while. I mean, they're beat up and they're tore up. And so I remember thinking from 2007, I was ranked around like, ninth, 10th in the world um, and still couldn't get a deal. And I remember thinking, I will not buy my own spikes. Like someone should give me spikes. This is ridiculous. And so I kept running in those. And when it came to the Olympics, though, they were just beat up and you could not run in the Olympics. So my training partner, Michelle Perry, I called her. She was the only one that wore my same shoe size. Are you in Beijing at this point? No, no, no. no. It's right before I left. This is right before I left. And so I told her, I said, I love you, but I'm not wearing your name on my shoes. Do you have any pairs of spikes that don't have your name on them and she looked she had one pairs of spikes and so she gave me those and i actually ran in the olympics and won in those wow yep all right i think we should uh should call them borrowed spikes all right don thank you again so much thank you, um, thank you don congratulations winning in borrowed spikes <laughs> all right Stefan, what are your borrowed spikes Major League Baseball has floated a plan to cut ties with a quarter of its affiliated minor league teams, 42 out of 160 teams in all. The plan reflects modern ideas about talent procurement, that you don't need as many minor league players to create major league players. Not incidentally, it also would potentially save a lot of money, eliminating hundreds of jobs for players, plus other costs like coaching, equipment, and travel. Towns could lose their teams. One club on the list is the Chattanooga Lookouts, which dates to 1885, and fans could lose something else, something to do on a summer night. But as I read over the names of the teams that are getting the ax, I realized that there's one other very important thing under threat, some really great nicknames. Depending on your value system, we are living through either the Jazz Age or the Great Depression of sports team nicknames. Minor League Baseball boasts slash shamefully embraces teams named the Sod Poodles, Woodpeckers, Storm Chasers, Jumbo Shrimp, Chihuahuas, Rubber Ducks, Yard Goats, Flying Squirrels, Wood Ducks, Fireflies, and Cannonballers. There's a newly formed team called the Rocket City Trash Pandas. 
They're a double-A team in Madison, Alabama that debuts next spring. Rocket City because of NASA's presence in the area. Trash Pandas because apparently there are a lot of raccoons in this part of Alabama. And raccoons were dubbed Trash Pandas on Reddit in 2014, which became a meme. And then Trash Pandas appeared in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 in 2017, not long before the vote on the team name. But I am not here to talk about the Trash Pandas because they seem to be safe. The Trash Pandas, by the way, outpolled moon possums, space chimps, and comet jockeys in the team's naming contest. I am here to pre-mourn the demise of some of the names on the baseball hit list in reverse order of my sadness with honorable mention to the Florida Fire Frogs, the Idaho Falls Chuckers, and the Missoula Paddleheads. Here are the top five teams that must be saved because of their nicknames. All right, five. The Vermont Lake Monsters. This team plays in Burlington, and there's a legend of a Loch Ness-like monster in Lake Champlain named Champ, which is, of course, the team's mascot. If the Lake Monsters die, though, we'll still have minor league hockey's Cleveland Monsters, who used to be the Lake Erie Monsters. The Burlington team is worth preserving also because it plays in a stadium originally built in 1906. I have seen a game there. Four, the Auburn Double Days. The upstate New York team is named for local boy Abner Doubleday, a Civil War general who was credited with inventing baseball. That Doubleday invented baseball was exposed as bullshit as early as 1909. But the myth lingered. The minor league team was formed in 1996. So this is a clever name because it both embraces and winks at and winks at baseball's history of myth making. Three, the Rocky Mountain vibes. <laughs> the thought process, if you can call it that, was that people in Colorado, this team plays in Colorado Springs, love the outdoors, and the outdoors create positive juju, good vibes. We came to the realization that we didn't want to be a thing, didn't want to be an animal, the team's general manager said. Being an attitude, a feeling, an emotion, that allows us to do a million different things. The possibilities are limitless. And this is the name that we don't want to kill? The Vibes have played one season. I love this name. It turns out maybe the possibilities aren't so limitless. Vibes, by the way, beat out the Happy Campers, Lamb Chops, Punchy Pikas, Throttle Jockeys, and Mountain Oysters. Can you describe to us what this logo is? Is that a half-eaten s'more? Okay, this is the alternate logo up here. That is a s'more. Yeah. Right. It's a mar- it's just a sorry, it's a pre-s'more. It's a pre-s'more. It's a marshmallow on a flame. Being surrounded, surrounding a baseball bat. So why aren't they called the Roasted Marshmallows? That would have been a good name, too. (laughs) I would have gone with the Rocky Mountain Highs. That's good. After the John Denver song? Yeah. All right, two. The Batavia Muck Dogs. The Muck Dogs were one of the first absurdist baseball nicknames back in 1998 when marketers realized that you could attach a dog or some other growling animal to a local historical or geographical feature and create a name that lends itself to a lot of media hits and a cartoon logo. Thick, fertile soil used to grow onions in this area of upstate New York is known as mucklands. A team official said, there are tall tales, I guess, 
emphasis on I guess, <laughs> of feral dogs who lived out on the muck, hence the name Muck Dogs. Also, he said, Muck Dogs sounds a lot cooler than the Batavia Onion Farmers or something like that. I would actually play for the Batavia Onion Farmers before I play for the Muck Dogs. Onion Abner, Abner Doubleday had the biggest pack of Muck Dogs in all of uh, upstate. And an onion farm, yeah. I think, that he took with him. He always carried a, pot, a pouch of onions to the Civil War to the battlefields. It's true. Uh, one, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. This New York Mets affiliate got a lot of attention when it was renamed in 2016 from the Binghamton Mets who themselves may want to consider a rebranding of their own. Uh, Binghamton, New York has a bunch of antique carousels. As far as I can tell, and I looked this up in newspaper databases, so I'm pretty sure this is a totally made-up phrase, a synonym for a merry-go-round horse. There is no such thing as a rumble pony. The team also invented a definition of rumble pony. It says rumble ponies refers to a herd of fierce horses that no carousel center pole can contain. <laughs> but do you know who was a rumble pony, Josh? Tim Tebow was a rumble pony. Tim Tebow's best season in minor league baseball, 273 batting average, six homers, 36 runs batted in in 84 games, was in Binghamton as a rumble pony. Tim Tebow, New York Jet for eight passes, rumble pony forever. They should retire his number while they can. The rumble ponies, that is. All right, one more though. This doesn't count, this is like zero. Um, the Lowell Spinners. This is actually a genuinely fantastic name, straight up honoring the local textile industry. Save the spinners, save the pond monsters or the lake dogs or whatever they're called, save the rumble ponies, start a team called the Onion Farmers <laughs> and save that too. Major League Baseball shouldn't be helping to kill off teams. It should be investing more to preserve them. Huzzah, huzzah. <laughs> Josh, what are your borrowed spikes? So last Thursday night around 1040 Eastern time, maybe you were asleep Maybe you're eating pumpkin pie with slabs of turkey around it, like uh, pieces of bread. We're not here to talk about your food decisions, good or bad. We're here to talk about the Egg Bowl, a college football game between the four and seven Ole Miss Rebels and the five and six Mississippi State Bulldogs. Let's pick up the action. Late on Thanksgiving night, less than 10 seconds on the clock, Ole Miss is down seven with the ball on the two-yard line. Here comes the pressure. Corral towards the goal line. It is caught! It is a touchdown! Elijah Moore! And they're an extra point away for tying the game! And penalty markers get thrown after the play! Uh-oh, big-time extra point here. If this is excessive celebration. A sportsmanlike conduct foul. Eight on the offense. And Pilsen will be in for 15 yards on the kickoff. We'll have the try. One on top now. So what we just saw is Ole Miss receiver Elijah Moore catching a touchdown pass and then lifting his leg in the manner of a peeing dog, I guess to taunt the opposing Bulldogs by marking the end zone as his territory. That would be my guess. Um, the celebration drew a 15-yard penalty, which is going to force Ole Miss to kick a 35-yard extra point to tie the game. Before we see that extra point attempt, I want to call your attention to the fact that Elijah Moore 
was not the first Ole Miss receiver to get a 15-yard penalty in the Egg Bowl for scoring a touchdown, getting on all fours, and miming dog urination. (laughs) DK Metcalf did the same thing two years ago. Here's a photo of DK Metcalf. He's the guy on the left. That man can celebrate however he wants to celebrate. (laughs) I'd also like to point out that Metcalf, who plays for the Seahawks now, has said that he wants to own a restaurant named Cheesy Goodness, where cheese is king and put it on everything. I'm starting to like this guy even more. Back to 2019, I would also like to point out one more thing. Elijah Moore did the dog urination thing. He then went to the sideline and grabbed a championship belt. That belt says NWO, which stands for Nasty Whiteouts which is a bit on the nose for my taste. All right, let's pick up where we left off. 35-yard, potentially, potentially game-tying extra point. Let's watch it. So it comes down to the foot of Luke Logan, the junior from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a 35-yard extra point to tie the game. The pick is up, and it is no good! Every time a kicker misses, I, I, I cry a little inside. So the kick went wide right, and as the kick was happening, they went to a split screen of Elijah Moore lifting his leg, which had to be distracting. Um, Ole Miss loses the egg ball in ridiculous fashion, but things got truly ridiculous after the game was over. Ole Miss coach Matt Luke and athletic director Keith Carter released a joint statement. We want to apologize formally as a program to the Ole Miss family for the disappointing and unacceptable action that occurred at the end of Thursday's game. Elijah Moore himself also apologized to my teammates, coaches, and Rebel Nation for my actions at the end of the game. It was an emotional moment, and I deeply regret it. The Rebel Nation thing is really what gets me. When you're apologizing for dog mimicry to a group of people that's still fighting the Civil War... Maybe the, the lines of apology are running in the wrong direction. Okay, I personally, Stefan, think it was the kicker's fault. No. You, you've got to pick up your teammates, Stefan, in a circumstance like this. But mostly, pretty much entirely, it was the ref's fault because the dog peeing thing was funny. And even if you don't think it's funny, then who really cares? Elijah Moore is risking long-term brand damage for our entertainment. And you're going to say it's unsportsmanlike? for him to do some light mime work in the end zone. That's just me. That is not how Yahoo's Pete Thamel saw it. Um, This was Thamel's tweet promoting his story. Column on Elijah Moore's deep niche in sports infamy, a fatal act of selfishness that's unparalleled. Also, Ole Miss's lack of response is typical of a have-not SEC school with a moral compass guided by the caliber of the next opponent. A fatal act of selfishness. (laughs) Unparalleled. And as far as Ole Miss's lack of response, what does he want them to do? Shut down the school? Should Elijah Moore pay back all of the salary he isn't earning? Um, But Thamel, it turns out, Stefan, he spoke too soon. Ole Miss did do something. Three days later, they fired their head coach saying, Matt Luke, the coach, will always be a cherished member, again, of the the Old Miss Miss family, family. but that we are judged ultimately by our record. And unfortunately, we did not meet the standard of success that we expect from our program. When asked if Luke got fired because of the dog peeing, the athletic director said, certainly the game and the way it was finished was a factor, but by no means was it the only factor or the main factor. So he got fired for the dog peeing. Um, (laughs) 
Ole Miss fans who are very angry at Elijah Moore because he cost them the game or whatever, they suddenly were very happy with Elijah Moore because they hate their coach and wanted him to get fired. That the turn and the unexpected turn in the story. Ole Miss should build a statue of Elijah Moore hiking his leg now, wrote John Chisholm on Twitter. The SB Nation Ole Miss site changed its username on Twitter to the piss that saved Ole Miss. <laughs> All's well that ends well, I suppose. But before I let you go, I want to linger on this for just another minute. Because where have we gone wrong as a culture when we're penalizing this kind of creative expression? Is acting like a dog really so wrong? We haven't always thought so as a nation of sports watchers. Here is a video of a sports highlight from 1994. Watch the barking dog play. Down by one point, with two seconds left, this player gets down on all fours and barks like a dog in an attempt to distract the other team. It works, and his team wins. <laughs> that was from a junior varsity high school game in Casper, Wyoming. The highlight was on CNN, it was on ESPN, the barking player and his coach appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. <laughs> the coach said, the play has a lot of appeal. It's about kids having fun. It's not about kids and drugs or kids and guns. It's about fun. I was not expecting him to go there either. I'm not really sure where that, where that came from. Um, but let's, let it, let's do a little compare and con contrast. Lifting your leg in the end zone, it's a victimless crime. The play is over. I don't think you're offending anyone who's ever taken a dog for a walk getting down on all fours and barking like a dog while the ball is in play to distract the other team. It's not heinous. I don't really have a problem with it, but is this what we want to be teaching our children? Stefan, I actually think it is kind of what we want to be teaching our children. <laughs> Guile is important, but my point is that it's not unambiguously better than the peeing thing. And there was, I should say, to be totally transparent, some concern trolling about the barking incident. In 2003, the Associated Press ran a story about... Wait, ten the, years later? Ten years later, about the supposed decline of sportsmanship in the United States. It told the story of Sue Willie, an associate athletic director at the University of Indianapolis, who asked her students in a sports ethics class what they thought of a well-publicized play in a high school game several years ago when a player was instructed by his coach to get down on all fours and bark like a dog to distract the other team and allow a teammate to grab an inbounds pass for a game-winning layup. This is what the AP says, and I quote, most men in the class thought it was brilliant. Most of the women thought it was absurd. Today, Willie says, even women are more accepting of the incident. Even women. That's how far we've fallen. My fellow Americans, can we just let peeing dogs lie and barking dogs bark and also lie? Because in the end, when it comes down to it, aren't we all just nasty whiteouts? trying to find love, happiness, and a nice spot to pee in the end zone of Davis Wade Stadium in Starkville, Mississippi. That is all. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Give it up for Melissa. Thank you for, to Faith Smith for putting on this event and to the Hamilton for hosting us. An amazing venue. To listen to past shows and subscribe or reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. Email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. And, and for coming. thanks to all of our guests. Oh, yeah. We had guests.
Thank you, Don Harper Nelson, Gene Demby, Lindsey Gibbs, Dave McKenna. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.